Well, welcome. It's so great to have you here this morning, and I'm excited to open God's Word together. Uh, this past Friday, uh, our kids went for their yearly checkup. We have two, two little ones. We have a, a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And they went for their yearly checkup at the pediatrician. And uh, the pediatrician was asking them all sorts of questions, you know, to sort of gauge, you know, if they're developmentally advancing the way that six-year-old and three-year-olds are supposed to. And so the doctor started out by saying, you know, so, so Elijah and Gigi, what do you guys like to eat? And they both sort of, you know, like, looked at her. I think they were a little nervous, like, what's the right answer? And Gigi didn't give an answer, and Elijah was like, green beans and fruit. And, <laughs> and Jerry and I literally almost passed out. We were like, we have never heard you say that in our house. Like, you know, and, she, and the doctor was like, I've never heard a child say that in the doctor's office. You know, I asked Gigi later, I was like, what is it that you like to eat? And she's like, everything. I was like, yeah, that's pretty much true. And... Um, she then went on, she asked him another question, and she said, what do you guys want to be when you grow up? And uh, Gigi, again, I think was a little nervous, so she didn't answer. I asked her later what she wanted to be when she grew up, and she said famous. So, uh, so we've started a counseling fund and a college fund for her. Uh, but Elijah, he said to the doctor, he said, you know, I'm not sure. And, uh, and I've heard him talk about all sorts of things that he wants to be when he grows up. And so uh, later on in the day, we were talking and we were driving in the car. And I said, hey, Elijah, you know, when the doctor asked you what you wanted to be when you grow up, how come you, how come you didn't give her an answer? He said, well, well, mom, I mean, that's a hard question. I mean, I mean like, how would I know what I want to be when I grow up? I can only know like a couple of days into the future. How would I know what I want to be when I grow up and I'm an adult? And, and I was like, geez, this kid, he's brilliant. Like he's very wise, you know? And, and so Jared and I were laughing and we're like, that's true. You know, you can only see sort of a couple days in front of you. And, and so Jared, of course, took the opportunity in that moment. He's like, well, Elijah, mommy's going to be preaching on Sunday. How do you think she's going to do? And, uh, and he said, hmm, I think she's going to do okay. So I, I don't have that much pressure this morning here today. Uh, Elijah, Elijah predicted that this was going to be okay. So, uh, so no pressure for you. But uh, I, I'm excited about what we're going to dive into this morning. And uh, last week we kicked off a new series, uh, as Clay and Jared just said. And, and we took a look at how do we move from here to there in our life. And we talked a little bit about how we're all here. We're all in the present. And most of us would honestly say that there is a there that we long to be at. I think for many of us, we can sort of picture it. Uh, we can sort of picture where we want to go. But much like Elijah, when, you know, answering that question, we can sort of only see, like, just what's right in front of us, you know, the next day and the next day after that, and, you know, maybe the next few steps that we're supposed to take. Last week, we looked at this reality that in order to move along the spectrum in our life from here to there, we need to actually be able to respond to the moments that God puts in our path with a movement of faith. That we have to respond to the moments that he puts in our life with a movement of faith. And we looked at this story in the Bible of four guys that had unbelievable, this audacious faith, and, and they so desperately 
wanted their friend to be able to see Jesus, that these four guys, literally, they climbed up onto a roof, they cut a hole in the roof, they lowered this guy down on a mat because there was no way to get in, just so that Jesus could see this guy and heal him. And clearly, you know, that story, it required an unbelievable amount of faith. And faith is essential for any movement of God. For God to be at work, faith is essential in that. I mean, faith is, is essentially being hopeful of what we cannot see. That's the definition of faith. It's found in Hebrews 11.1. 1. And, and it's necessary to fuel the moments in our life in order for them to be turned into a movement of God. Faith is essential for us to move from here to there in our life. And we, can't, we can't move from here to there without faith being a part of it. But there's this short little phrase, and probably some of you have heard this phrase before, and and it's said often. There's a phrase about faith, and it it goes like this. Faith without works is dead. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Faith without works is dead. And and that phrase actually comes from a verse in the Bible. It's found in James 2.17, and the verse reads like this. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action is dead. So the simplest translation, the simplest understanding of that verse is that faith alone is not enough. So faith is essential to move from here to there in our life, but faith alone is not enough. And this little verse in the Bible has received quite a bit of attention throughout the years. There have literally been hundreds of theology books that have written just about this verse. Scholars have studied this verse. Uh, there are different denominations within Christianity that have literally made this sort of their, their bedrock rally cry. And then there are other parts of Christianity that have altogether ignored this passage. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who arguably is probably one of the greatest Christian thinkers and writers. He once said this about this passage in James. He said, Christians have often disputed as to whether what leads the Christian home is good actions or faith in Christ. C.S. Lewis says, I have no right really to speak on such a difficult question, but it does seem to me that it's like asking which blade and a pair of scissors is most necessary. So C.S. Lewis essentially is saying faith and works, they always need to go together. You can't separate them out. They always need to go together. And I will never forget uh, the the week that Jarrett and I sort of took our leap of faith uh, in our hearts to start this church. Uh, we, some of you may have heard this story before. We had gone to see a good friend who was a life planner. And, and this life planner, he sort of helps people discern their strengths and abilities, uh, you know, wh- what they're good at, their life experiences, and, and gives them guidance and helps them sort of write a plan to, to live their life by. And, and we had set up this time to go see him, and he does this with corporations and CEOs and that kind of thing. And so we said, you know, we've, we've got this hunch. We're sensing that God is telling us to start a church, but can you sort of sit with us for a while and, and help us discern, you know, is this what we're supposed to do? And, uh, and so we had people praying for us, and, and we drove up to Holland, Michigan, where he lives. And, and during that time, 
when we were there and when we were together, uh, it, it was clear to us, it was utterly clear to us that this was not just a suggestion that God was making, like, you know, one day you might want to start a church. You know, It wasn't in the suggestion category. It was an act of obedience for us. That this was so clear that God was saying to us, I am calling you to start a church. And so when we left Holland, Michigan, and and we were headed back to Chicago where our kids were staying with family members, and then we were going to fly down to Atlanta where we were living at the time, you know, Jarrett and I, in our hearts and in our minds, we were about ready to take a leap of faith. You know, I mean, it was like, this is what God has told us to do. We're going to do it. And, and we were fresh in that mindset of what it meant to, to go out and take a risks. And risks, they're really awesome, right, before you ever take them, aren't they? Like, before you've ever taken the risk, it's amazing to talk about, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing hard about the risk at that moment. There's no difficulties. There's no pressures. I mean, we were about ready to leave jobs. We were going to go try and sell a house. We were going to move from one city to another city. We were going to give up paychecks. We were going to step out to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars to start a church. And it seemed like a piece of cake on that drive home. You know, we were like, this is going to be simple. This is no problem at all. And, and we were just flying high on faith. And we, we were dreaming and we were hoping and we were believing and we were planning and we were praying. I mean, at some point in that car ride, I think one of us gave an altar call and we both went forward. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, we were just like, of course, this is exactly what God's called us to do. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be amazing. We have all the faith that is necessary to do this. And I don't know what it was, but, you know, a few miles down the road, um, we started driving past churches. And on that drive from Holland, Michigan to Chicago, we probably drove past at least a dozen churches. And almost every one of those churches, the windows and the doors were either boarded up. The churches had maybe four to six cars in the parking lot. As I looked through the windows, like there was like maybe one or two lights on. There wasn't this sense that, that life and love was pouring out from everything that I could tell. And honestly, here we are, fresh off this decision to take a risk. Fresh off this faith adventure of saying, yes, this is what we're going to do. God is so clearly telling us to take this risk. And honestly, a little part of me got very scared. I mean, we felt like God was calling us to step into a great faith adventure, to see lives transformed. We believed with all of our hearts. We had worked in the local church up until that point for well over a decade, and we believed that the local church had the hope that was necessary to bring to a hurting world, and we could see it and taste it and believe in it. But every single church that we drove past on that ride was cold and dark. The grass had sort of like grown up and it was overgrown all around. The marquee signs had dates that were, you know, like way past the date where we actually were. There wasn't this sense that that life and love was was literally coming out from those churches in in the few short seconds that that I saw them. And of course, our conversation, it began to shift. And here we were, you know, filled with excitement and faith, and and yet what we were seeing was something that that wasn't exciting. And and we began to talk about, you know, that first church, that first church in Acts. I mean, they were known 
for their love. They were known for for how devoted they were to one another. And they were so committed to the teachings of Jesus and to the work of the gospel. And they literally had people, the scriptures say, being added to their number daily. And they didn't have like a marketing plan on how to reach those people, right? They were just drawn by the love of those people. And then we began to reflect on, on what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. He said this, I will build my church and the gates of death will not overcome it. I mean, Jesus said about the church, about the bride of Christ. He said not even death, not even death can stand in the way of the vision of the church. And we found ourselves asking the question, you know, if that first church back in the book of Acts was experiencing this this transformation, and, and if Jesus literally goes as far to say in the book of Matthew that nothing can stop my church, not even death can stand in the way of it, then what has happened? And maybe you have found yourself asking that question at times. When you look at the church and when you look at the the cultural landscape that we live in, ask yourself the question, what has happened? I mean, if Jesus said nothing can stand in the way in it, and and that first church, literally, people were being added to it day by day by day, then then what went wrong? And and this is amazing. I mean, I don't know if you knew this, and this is going to blow your minds. This is staggering. Did you know that every single year, every single year, Approximately 7,000, 7,000 churches close their doors for the last time. Every year, every year that happens. Did you know that last year in 2010, 2010, only 16% of Americans identified that they're a part of a church? That means that 84% of America 84% of America is not doing what you're doing right now. Staggering, isn't it? Do you know more than than half of 18 to 29-year-olds with a Christian background, okay, so so grew up somewhere around the church, they say that they are less active in the church than they were at age 15. And most of that half would say that the church is not necessary in their faith. In the church, it's just become a place, hasn't it? It's just become an hour on Sunday, hasn't it? And, and for us, you know, and, and that first car ride, and, and over the last couple of years, we found ourselves asking the question, what happened? I mean, what happened? If, if that first church in the book of Acts literally was so compelling that people were trying to find a way to become a part of it, and if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, literally said, death can't stand in the way of the vision of my church, then what happened? When did the church, this living, breathing family of God, get confined down to a day? Even more than that, an hour and a half on a day. When did churches start having planning meetings to help people figure out how to fit God into their life? I mean, isn't that backwards? Isn't, isn't that what's broken? Because God was, God was never intended to be confined to an hour and a half. He was never intended to be confined to a day. In fact, it's impossible to do that, isn't it? 
It's impossible to do that. His mission for the local church is well beyond a gathering. It's well beyond a space. It's well beyond just one church. And and that's when we started saying in that first car ride from Michigan back to Chicago, it's got to be better seven days a week. It's just got to be better seven days a week instead of just one. If we throw all of our eggs into the basket of Sunday, if we throw all of our eggs into the basket of, of one day and one hour to hopefully ignite a transformational desire into the hearts of people that we'll see incremental change, it will be the most foolish decision we've ever made. And I think asking the question of what happened is an important question, and it needs to be asked, but there's a more important question than just what happened. And that question is, what should we do? I mean, what should we do? What is God asking of us, of this church, of this body? I want to take a look into a a passage that's found in the Old Testament. In fact, you can grab your Bibles in front of you. And we're going to turn to uh, Isaiah 61. It's found on page 689. And as we wrestle with that question of what should we do, I think that this passage in Isaiah is going to give us some good indicators of what God might be asking us to do. You know, Isaiah, uh, he was a prophet. In fact, he was actually the prophet that prophesied Uh, the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. And prophets in the Old Testament are are essentially these truth speakers. Uh, They were were the voice of God to get the attention of the people. And Isaiah, he says some pretty profound things throughout his book. And and specifically in this chapter here uh, uh, in 61. And, And this is an amazing thing because Jesus himself literally used this passage as, as the text that he spoke his first sermon from. So we're going to look at Isaiah 61, and we're going to look at the first four verses together. So let's read it together. It's going to be up on the screens, and it's in your book. I'll, re- I'll read it out loud for you. It says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called mighty oaks, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. So what does that mean? You know, what, what is God trying to say to us in this passage? Essentially, this is a vision that God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah of what the church should be. And here's the amazing thing. It was written thousands of years before there ever was a church. 
This is the passage about what the people of God, the family of God, the bride of Christ, that's how the church is referred to, should look like. As I said, this is the passage that Jesus himself, in his very first sermon, ever quoted. He quoted from Isaiah 61, and he talked about this as the way of being the people of God. You know, it's amazing to me in this passage. In this passage, there isn't a mention of a certain time in the week that we're supposed to set the captives free. There's not like, a, like an hour, you know, at 6 o'clock on Tuesdays, yep, that's setting the captives free time. You know, in this passage, there isn't a mention of, of you know, when it is that we're supposed to bind up, bind up the brokenhearted. Mondays at noon, that's when the brokenhearted get bonded up. Make sure that you do that. There's no mention of that. There isn't a certain day when we're supposed to offer freedom and hope to the poor. There isn't a mention of one day in this passage, is there? Isaiah is painting this as a way of life. And here's the thing. The way of God can't be confined into a day. It has to be a way. Let me say that again. The way of God can't be confined into a day. It has to be a way. It can't be done by a couple of professionals that decided to go into full-time ministry. And sadly, what the church in America has become is people going to watch professionals do church for an hour and a half on Sunday. And we wonder why only 13% of Americans align their lives with a local body of believers. We wonder why 7,000 church doors close just last year. The church of God has largely overlooked the power of the people of God, living out the way of God throughout their lives, throughout their week, and throughout this city. We've defined a church as a place that we go to for an hour and a half, and in so doing, we have literally tried to confine God into that place. And the only way it will start to change is when we start to be the way of God. And I think many of us, and and myself, I'm included into this. Um, It's really easy for us to critique the church, isn't it? It's really easy for us to sort of wax eloquent on what we think needs to be better, isn't it? I mean, I know, I've done it. I confess, I've done it. I've done it about this church. And I started it. And my hunch is that we all sort of have a story of something. Um, something that's happened or, you know, a, a judgment that we've cast or, you know, uh, and it's probably even been legitimate where we've seen the church cause some pain or cause some hurt. But if we really believe that the church is a picture of the people of God, that it is a who, not a what, That the church is the bride of Christ. If if this is the bride of Christ, Jesus describes us as the bride of Christ. How many of you have been to a wedding before? You've been to a wedding. When you were at that wedding, did you find yourself saying, geez, I mean, the bride, she really should have done her hair. I mean, if she would have put a little bit more makeup on, I mean, really, this is her wedding day. My goodness, she should have, like, you know, gotten herself ready for this. If you would have done that, the groom would have punched your lights out, wouldn't he? 
No one ever critiques a bride on her wedding day. Ever. And yet, so many of us, that's our posture with the church, isn't it? I think that for many of us, you know, the, the church, it's, it's called the family of God, isn't it? And, and so if that's the case, then we're brothers and we're sisters here today, right? And everybody has some sort of crazy aunt or crazy uncle, don't you? And you're willing to do just about anything for that crazy aunt or that crazy uncle. Why? Because you're family, right? I mean, the family of God, that's what we're called. And and yet so many of us, our posture about the church is, is to critique it. And critique, the problem with it, it always stays in a moment. When you critique something, it never has the possibility of becoming a movement. Because a critique doesn't require faith, does it? But you know what gives me so much hope? You know what gives me so much joy? Is when I look at this body. When I look at this bride of Christ. When I look at this family of God in this community. I see a body of believers that's saying, we don't want to be one of those statistics. We don't ever want our door to be shut. In fact, we want to find more ways and more doors to open. I think about people in this body, people in this community, people like Chrissy Jonas Saint and, and Kelly Woodsome. They work for By the Hand Club. You know what they do seven days out of the week? They build into kids' lives. They do home visits with their families. They tutor them. They disciple them. They're being the church seven days a week. I think about Mallory Minor, who's a part of this body. Just this week, she got back from Kenya after being there for a little over three months, and she's doing great work with Oasis for orphans and community development in that village. I think about Melissa Gear, who's a PhD student at the University of Chicago, and she's studying community urban development. Do you know why she's doing that? Her main objective is to figure out how city planning has marginalized the poor and what we can do to help the under-resourced to bring transformation back into those neighborhoods. I think about Dave Schroeder. Do you know what Dave does on a regular basis? He makes sure that this building is clean for all of you every single week. He makes sure that there's toilet paper put into the stalls. He makes sure that the floors are clean. He leads a small group here on Wednesday nights with a bunch of guys. And you know what they do? They open God's word for a little while, and then they spend the next hour making sure that this building is a presentable place for all of us. That's the church, isn't it? I think about a group that comes here every other Wednesday night. Fabi and John and Jade and Justin and Jerrica. Do you know what they do the whole time that they're here? They pray for our church. They don't have meetings about things. They don't plan things. They don't have, you know, like, to-do lists. They pray. They pray for all of us. I think about Jerome, who leads a small group every Friday night. They give up their Friday night so that they can go over to Breakthrough Urban Ministries, one of our partners, and they can serve meals to the under-resourced. I think about Allie Nelson, who started an 
art club over at Brown Elementary. And she's using her gifts and her passion for the arts, and she's impacting kids who might not ever be exposed to them. You know what Allie does before they start each day? She has them go around the room and sort of tell one another about their day, about something that's going on in their life before they start to do their art project for the day. I think about Audra, who led our Joplin trip, who when, you know, we all watched on the news and the devastation of what happened, she said, what can we do? And within a couple of days, you know, a bunch of people found a van and found some money and put themselves in the van and said, hi, who are you? And they drove to Joplin together. And they cared for those that were in a terrible situation. I think about Scott Hoskins, who's working to get a reading program started over at Brown Elementary. He's a busy guy with a busy life, with a busy job. And yet God is just pushed on his heart. I've called you to do more. I think about Carrie Wright, who's a professor, and she's actually working to get her students to eventually partner with the students of Brown Elementary to help in that reading program. I think about Brian and Brianne Ratke. They've adopted three children. I think about Luke and Sarah Roos, who are intentionally influencing the West Loop. They're in a parents' club, and they're in that club so that they can expose people to the love of Jesus. I think about Dan Loing. Every time I see Dan, somebody's with him. Dan has brought more people to this church than I knew people. There's always somebody with him, always somebody on his arm. He's always introducing, this is my friend. Just wanted them to come to church with me today. Think about Mark and Jeannie Malnati, who opened up a Malnati's branch in Lawndale and put all the proceeds back into that neighborhood. I think about Nikki Valentine, who blogs to inspire people to volunteer with their time. I think about Allie Griffin, who works with autistic kids in a public school in Kentwood. I think about Justin and Jerrica Ferris, who volunteer down at a student ministry in Englewood. I think of the countless people from across the street at Mercy Home that literally have given up a year from Megan Casey to Stephanie Salinas that have literally given up a year to volunteer their time with the residents at Mercy Home. I think about Dave Van Dixhorn, who gave up an entire year to be a full-time volunteer this past year at the church to build this church seven days a week. That is seven is greater than one, isn't it? That is seven is greater than one. And... And that is what the church is supposed to be. That, that's what we're supposed to be, aren't we? That's what we're supposed to be. That's what God called us to be. You know, throughout the building today, and I encourage you to walk around, uh, there's pictures of what this building looked like um, back when it was here and now it's moved to there. There's pictures of what, of what this space looked like. And, and it sort of shows a, a physical representation of what God has done over this past year. How this warehouse was literally transformed into a place of worship. And how it happened both because of faith and the works of this body. 
But my friends, those pictures, that's just the beginning, isn't it? That's just the beginning. That's just the start. The prophet Jeremiah said this, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for me? And I think that is the question that God is asking us, Soul City. Is there anything too hard for me? Is there anything too hard for me? Isaiah 61 that that we just read, it's not a call for us to just go out and bring the good news. Do you know what it is? It's a call for us to be the good news, isn't it? It's not about bringing the good news. It's about us living as the good news. You know, right here at 1130 West Adams Street, if you were to just draw a one-mile circle around this space, there's 164,000 people. That's a lot of people. If you have issues with claustrophobia, this is not the place for you to live. That's a lot of people. And 84% of those people are not in a church. They're not experiencing the family of God. They're not experiencing what Isaiah prophesied about. They're not tasting what that first church in Acts experienced. And this is our call as a church, Soul City Church, to not just bring the good news to them, but to be the good news. Seven days a week, this is how we are seven is greater than one. And the Bible says very clearly that without vision, people perish. And I don't think that that verse like, means that they just poof, they perish. I think what that means is that, is that people just go about their ordinary lives, their busy, ordinary lives, because there isn't a greater vision for them to give themselves to. And here's the thing. God has gifted you. He has gifted you uniquely. He has put something inside of you. He has wired you with a talent, with a gift. And he is calling you to something. He is calling you to something. And I pray that a curiosity is awakened around this city and around this neighborhood and around this community. And that curiosity is about you. Why is she different? What is it about her? She is, she's so loving. She's so nice. He holds the door for me. He asks if I can pick up something at the store when I'm going shopping. I don't know, she, she always seems to know what I might need and brings me a coffee in the morning. It's those little things, isn't it? And as you are filled up, fill others up. As you are encouraged, encourage others. As you are blessed, be a blessing. As you are challenged, be a voice of truth to others. As you see injustice, speak up and start to fight for that injustice responsibly. As you encounter hope, give hope to someone that feels hopeless. And just like in Isaiah 64, the 164,000 people that are right around this building, I can only imagine that there are some people that need to hear the good news, don't they? There are people that are brokenhearted. 
There are people that feel like they are without freedom, that they are a captive. There are people that are grieving and mourning and need to be comforted. There are people that feel like they walk around with a crown of ashes on their head and they need to be led to a place where they can see that Jesus has a crown of beauty for them. We live in a city that needs to be restored and we know that Jesus is the one that can do those things, don't we? And my hunch is you are sitting in this room today because you have started to experience that transformational love of Jesus in your life. There might be parts of you, there are, I know there are parts of me where I need that same love. I need to be encouraged. I need to be blessed. I need to be reminded of the truth. And that passage goes on to describe us, the people of God, as mighty oaks. Isn't that a beautiful picture? As mighty oaks. You know, this last week... Um, my daughter in her preschool, they have this thing where the parents sign up to come and be mystery readers. And so uh, Jarrett had signed up and he was the mystery reader of the day. And so he, you pick out a book and you go and, you know, the teacher says, we have a mystery reader today. And all the kids start guessing who it might be. And, you know, and so Jarrett was standing outside the classroom and, you know, the teacher did all of that. And, and then he walked in and Gigi got so excited she got so excited that Jarrett was the mystery reader. She stood up and started jumping up and down that she was so happy her pants literally fell off. <laughs> she was so happy that her daddy was the mystery reader of the day. There was such a joy and such an excitement that literally she was just like, whoop, Okay. <laughs> When was the last time you jumped up and down for something? That you said, I'm not going to let this injustice stand. I'm not going to let the brokenhearted continue to walk around me. I am not going to allow people to grieve alone. I'm not going to just walk past the man that has five blankets wrapped around him tonight. I'm going to figure out, God, what do you want me to do? This last week, um, Jarrett and I were woken up at around 4 in the morning, and uh, there was a domestic violence situation. And we were up on our second floor and looking down right onto the street, literally right in front of our house. And the scene that we saw was terrible. And it broke our hearts. And we both, after we called the police and, you know, tried to intervene in the right way, got back into bed and neither of us could go back to sleep. And all week long, I keep asking God, God, why did that happen? Why did that happen in front of my house on the street that I live? Why did you want me to see that? And there are things that you see, terrible things. Isaiah 61 says that it's a city in ruins. And while we live in a great city, don't we? 
There are parts of this city that are in ruins, aren't there? And we are the people of God. We are the people of God. And we are not just supposed to bring the good news. We are supposed to be the good news. We are supposed to be the good news. And there is something. I don't know what it is for you. There's something I'm sure that is burning in your heart right now. A place where God is inviting you to be the good news. A place where he is calling you to move from here to there in your life. And you don't have to, to know all the answers. Like, like my son said, you know, how am I supposed to be, know what I'm supposed to be when I grow up? But you know that you can take one step, maybe two, to be generous to stop and to talk, to buy someone a coffee, to help someone in need, to offer to babysit for somebody. And here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to have one conversation before you walk out those doors today. Just one conversation. And this is the question. How am I going to be seven is greater than one this week? How am I going to be the good news? I'm going to invite the band to come up, and we're going to spend a few moments continuing to reflect on this with God and and worship and pray together. And as we do that, um, there is a... uh, There's a verse in the Bible that says this. It's Proverbs 11, 24. It says, The world of the generous gets larger and larger, and the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. It's true, isn't it? The world of the generous, it gets larger and larger. When we we can actually be the church, when we can be the good news, not just here in this space where it's it's easy for us to do this, but, but seven days out of the week, When we can be that good news, our worlds get larger and larger. And and I'm not sure what it is for you, but my hunch is there's a place where you feel prompted, where God is saying, this is how I want you to actually be the church. I'm proud of you for going to church. I'm proud of you for being there. And and this is important for us to gather and to assemble together. But, But I want you to take a step. I want you to be the church. On Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday. And I don't know, maybe over the next few moments you might want to get up. One of the things we do here on a regular basis is you can see we've got all sorts of graffiti on our pillars. That's, um, it's intentional. It's a place where we write our prayers to God, where we, where we write things down. And so maybe over the next few moments you may want to just get up and say, this is how I'm going to be the church this week. This is how I'm going to be the good news instead of just trying to to bring the good news. I'm going to actually be this. You might want to do that. For some of you, it might be a step in um, saying, I'm actually going to take a step and I'm going to be generous with my resources. God has blessed me. He's given me much. And and I want to trust him today. And I want to give a portion of, of what God has given to me back to this church so it can continue to do Things like Fallapalooza yesterday, where it can be a blessing to its neighborhood, where it can reach out to the students of Brown, where we can continue to to operate this facility so that we can have our doors open to this neighborhood. That might be a step for you today. Might be you want to have a conversation with somebody, 
Ask them to pray for you. Say, this is, I'm feeling God prompted me to do this. Would you pray for me? Um, but I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to spend a few moments uh, worshiping, and, uh, and then we'll go on about our days. So will you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that your word tells us that not even death can stand in the way of your church. And Father, I pray that this church, this church, Soul City Church, God, I pray that we would be a people that don't just try to bring the good news, but God, we live lives that are good news. I pray that you would transform us with your love in such a way, Jesus, that people, when they see us, that they would magnetically be drawn to your son, Jesus. Father, I pray, I pray that you would break our hearts for this city. I pray that we would see how it is in ruins. And God, I pray that you would uniquely and creatively compel each of us as individuals and as a church, that you would tell us, God, how it is that you are calling us and directing us and pushing us and challenging us to be the good news to this space, God. I pray for the 164,000 people that are around this building right now. Jesus, I pray that they would encounter your love. Thank you for what you're doing, God. We give you this worship. We give you our resources. We trust you. We put our faith in you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.